Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us your word. We thank you because it gives us a sight of Christ Jesus, your Son and our Lord. We thank you because it gives us a picture of who he is, the kind of things that he does, and the kind of life we should live as a result. We pray that today you would open our eyes to your truth, open our hearts to your truth, shape our lives according to your truth. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't say that this is true of each one of you, but I imagine that for most of you, as is the case with me, we are fascinated with the future. Right? We, we look to the future and wonder what is coming, and, and our thoughts are occupied by it, and we, we wonder, we muse upon it, and, and I think it's a cultural thing that, that's quite broadly cultural. We only need to look at the fact that there are uh, such a proliferation of, of psychics and fortune tellers and horoscopes and palm readings and all these sorts of things. I think it's because there's so much uncertainty about the future, right? We, we don't know what it is and, and, and things seem so topsy-turvy in our lives and, and we feel out of control as a result and we just want to retain some control and we feel that if we would just know what the future held, if we knew where we were going, if we knew what was going to happen, we could kind of gird ourselves for it, we could ready ourselves for it, and we would be all right, we'd be able to live our lives and not be so worried. My family learned this about four years ago when our son was diagnosed with leukemia. It came like just a, a shot out of the dark and it upended our lives and, and we just wanted to know, is, is everything going to be all right? What, what does the world look like? And we rejoice now that we can look back on it and know that the things that we went through led us to a place where things were all right. But at that time, there were questions we had. We wondered, why, Lord? What's going on? Just help us to, to see. And we wanted to know that the future would be all right, surely you've had similar experiences in your life. Perhaps you're, you're in a place right now where you're asking those same types of questions. Lord, what does the future hold for me? What, where is it headed? Am I going to be all right? Are things going to be okay? We are fascinated with the future. We are concerned and worried about the future. And into this fascination, this concern, this worry, steps Jesus. He, he steps into our fascination and worry and concern, and it is good that Jesus knows the future, Jesus shows the future, and Jesus goes to the future. We see these things in today's text. We'll look through that. And, and first off, I just want to ask you a question. If you knew the future, what would you do? Right? What, how would it change your life? What would happen? Now, some of you are probably saying, well, I, if I knew the future, I'd probably play the lottery, right? Because, you know, I, 
don't believe in gambling, but if I knew the numbers, right, then it's not gambling anymore, right? So that would be great, and I'd win millions of dollars, and I'd be financially set. Some of us who perhaps are a little bit more altruistic would say something like, well, if I knew the future, I would, I would look to those who are around me and, and, and help them to avoid some of the difficulties that they're going to face, right? Some of the things that are going to trip them up in life. I'd warn them and protect them and guard them and, and help them to avoid those things so that they don't get into those troubles. Certainly, we would try to avoid the troubles that we knew lay ahead of us. Right? We would avoid them and we'd go a different direction from them. It's interesting that Jesus did none of these things. Jesus knows the future. There's a reason for that, of course. The reason is that Jesus is the author of history. Right? So, of course, he knows everything past and everything future because it all is his story. Right? Much the same as uh, Shakespeare knew what was going to happen to Romeo and Juliet, right? He, he didn't have to wait until the last page because he knew where the story was going because it was his story. And so it is with Jesus. He knows the future. And we see an example of his unlimited knowledge in today's passage. When, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, it says. Now, now this is on the, the Passover is approaching. It's this time of year when, when pilgrims are going to pour into Jerusalem from all over the land, right? And, and so Jerusalem, which at the time had a population of about 80,000 people, so, so a little bit smaller, but about the same size as, let's say, the city of Flint, right? And, and, and during this time, where they normally had about 80,000 people, the ancient historian Josephus says the population of people in Jerusalem would swell to somewhere between one and two million people. That's a lot of people coming in to that area, right? They, they came there for the Passover, and we see Bethany and Bethphage mentioned here. Bethany was a place where people routinely stayed just outside of Jerusalem, right? If there's a million people coming into a city that only has 80,000 people living in it, you can imagine space is kind of cramped. There's only so many hotel rooms. There's only so many houses that people can stay with family members. There's only so many places to stay. So the surrounding villages obviously have to be a place where people would stay. And Bethany was one of the common places. And Bethphage was, was a Sabbath day's journey from there. It's about seven-tenths of a mile. So it, it's nearby as well. And so around these cities, we see that Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. No doubt, these disciples are wondering, how does Jesus know this? But at the same time, they have seen enough and experienced enough during their three years with Jesus to know that they ought not to doubt him. Right? Because he's done all kinds of miraculous things. He's said all kinds of incredible things, and they've all turned out to be right. And so no, no doubt... They trust him, even as he says something which would have been quite surprising. Untie it and bring it. They're like, whoa, Jesus, <laughs> slow down here. Really? He says, if anyone says to you, what are you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, 
and we'll send it back here immediately. Jesus knows specifically what the situation will be, and he knows specifically what will happen. He knows the future. Right? It's, it's something we see throughout the scriptures. Uh, we, we can look back in, in the book, book of Mark, just right before this, in the chapters leading up to it, actually. If we look in Mark 8, verse 31, it says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then in chapter 9, they went on from there and passed through Galilee and did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching the disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of the men, and they will, into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Again in chapter 10. We see it again. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Jesus knew the future. He's not walking blindly into it. He realizes what is before him. He knows what is waiting for him. Perhaps it's because of supernatural knowledge or, or perhaps there is some, some prearranged password that he set up with these folks with this donkey. We don't know and it really doesn't matter. What's most important for us to realize is that, that everything is under his sovereign control. He is he is the sovereign authority over everything, and everything is going according to his plans. We see it in verses 4 through 6. They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? Other gospels tell us that it was actually the owner of the colt asking this question. And we can't really blame him, can we? I mean, let's say you're standing outside in the front yard one day and somebody walks along and they hop in your car and say, hey, I need to take this. You wouldn't just say, oh, okay, no big deal, right? You'd have some questions. And so he has some questions here. But what do they say to him? They say, just as Jesus told them to say, and he lets them go. You know, perhaps he understood the right of a king to take whatever was his, right? We, we have a hard time getting our minds around this with our current sensibilities, right, and our understandings of private property rights and things like that. But in most of the world, for most of history, it's been understood that the king actually owns everything, and everything belongs to him. Perhaps it has to deal with the fact that, that Jesus was the king. And this man knew it to be the case, and so he relinquished it. For whatever reason, as William Hendrickson puts it, the mere mention of the fact that Jesus needed the colt was enough to secure immediate 
and unqualified assent. And for those of us who claim to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom over which Christ Jesus is the king, ought that not to be our attitude in all of life as well? Right? The fact that Jesus needs something is enough for us. He has asked it of us. We will give it to him. We won't hold back. We won't say, but what about this? We won't be reluctant. We will give to him that which is his. And what is his? Well, everything's his. Right? As the psalmist says, the, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, everything is his. Whatever we have is only ours because he has entrusted it to us that we might use it for his glory. But here's what it means for us. We can relinquish to him whatever we need to relinquish to him. We can give it to him. We can entrust even our very lives in his hands because he knows the future. He, he knows what is coming. He knows what is going to happen. So we can entrust ourselves to him because he won't be caught off guard. He won't be found wanting. He will be able to care for us in every situation. Right? So, so even when we don't know the future, even when we are scared, even when we don't really feel comfortable relinquishing control of our lives to him, we can do so. We can be confident trusting in him. Even when the future looks dark, we can trust him. We must trust him. Because he not only knows the future, but he also shows the future, our second point. There's, there, there's a reality with much of scripture where, where the scripture tells us a story about, about something happening. And it's, it's something that happened in time and space. It's actual history of something that happened. And yet at the same time, it is, it is pointing us forward to something else. Pointing us forward to something that, that will be a, a fuller sense of it, a fuller truth, a, a, a larger picture. And I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. In verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and they, they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. John tells us actually that, that these branches were palm branches and that's why this is called Palm Sunday, right? We had the, the palm branch processional at the beginning with the children coming through. And it's because they were palm branches and as they, they spread them out and they were waving them and, and, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And perhaps you notice that this is actually an appropriation of the 118th Psalm that we read together earlier today. When it says in verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord. That, that phrase, save us, we pray, in Hebrew, it, it's hoshana. It's, it's literally what it means. It's save us, we pray, Lord. Hosanna. That's what they were crying out to him. Save us, we pray. And, and it's not just a a request that, that, that they be, be saved individually. It was actually kind of a, a nationalistic cry in that day, much the same as I was just a little over a week ago in England, right? And, and if you're in England, somebody might say, God save the queen, right? And what they're saying at that point isn't just dealing with one woman. They're actually crying out a, a prayer of sorts for the nation as a whole, 
right? They, they're, they're looking for the well-being of the nation. They want God to prosper the nation. And so it is with this cry of Hosanna. They're crying out for, for God to prosper the nation. Save now, we pray, this nationalistic cry. Make our nation strong. Their concern was one of geopolitical interest. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. See, what they're doing here is, is they're crying out for this coming king that they had been waiting for, this Messiah that was now finally, at long last, before them. He had been prophesied by many prophets, including in Zechariah 9, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They recognized this prophecy. They knew this prophecy. And they realized that it applied to the one who was before them. To Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the king that they were waiting waiting on. He was the one about whom this spoke. But they had a problem. Though they very rightly appropriated Zechariah 9.9 in understanding who Jesus was, they kind of forgot about Zechariah 9.10, the very next verse. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. They were looking for a king who would come in power and might and drive out the Roman invaders and crush the Roman invaders and defeat them and shatter them. But what had actually been promised to them was a king who would bring peace. Andrew Peterson in his musical uh, performance, Behold the Lamb of God, kind of speaks to the the coming of the Messiah and all the Jewish longing that led up to it. And there's a, a song in his production that he has that speaks of this expectation they had. And, and it involves the people of Israel crying out to the prophet Isaiah, asking him about this, this Messiah that is to come. And they ask him, will he be a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist? Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? That's, that's what they wanted. They wanted a king who was going to come with a sword in his fist, a king that was mighty like David had been, a king that would shed the blood of the enemy and that would conquer them and defeat them and bring might and power to them as the people of Israel. But Jesus was coming as a different kind of king. Less than a week later, he would be standing before Pilate, And Pilate would ask him, what have you done? And Jesus would answer in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over to the, not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Right? See, too often we see problems in our world and we we want to solve them with the ways of the world. We, we see problems and we want to solve them. We see political problems and we think, well, we can solve those with, with more politics. But we fail to realize that the kingdom of God, the kingdom in which we claim 
Citizenship is a different kind of kingdom. And so it will be radically different than, than we expect what type of king this would be. Going back to Peterson's song, he, he says that when the people ask the prophet about this king, the answer that, that comes back from Isaiah is this. Says, Isaiah said, he'll bear no beauty or glory, rejected, despised. A man of such sorrow will cover our eyes. He'll take up our sickness and carry our tears for his people. He will be pierced. He'll be crushed for our evils, our punishment feel. And by his wounds, we will be healed. Right? This was the future that Jesus was going to and the future that he was showing them. Right? He would be a king of peace. In fact, scriptures talk of him that way, right? They, they say he's the prince of peace. That is who he is. But they were 100% right that he was the coming king, but, but they were 100% wrong about what type of king he was, and they weren't alone in that. It wasn't just the people screaming Hosanna. It was, of course, uh, the, the religious leaders that were wrong about what kind of king he was. It was the Romans that were wrong about what kind of king it was, he was. He, it was even his disciples that were wrong, right? You remember James and John saying to him, Jesus, when, when you, you come in your kingdom, let us sit on your right and your left. They thought a place of honor, a place of glory, a place of power is what they deserved and what they had coming to him. Or even Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll recall that he does actually pour out his soul, sword and fights to protect Jesus. But Jesus says, this is not the way of my kingdom. Too often we misunderstand too. We think that Jesus exists for our purposes. We think that he, he exists to enrich us, to bring about our political wishes, to make things the way we want them to be, to smite our enemies, to make things comfortable for us, to, to bring about our comfort. But Biblical Christianity is not ultimately about you. It is about God and his glory. And so we see this fuller sense that this points us toward. In Revelation 7, verse 9, it's a passage I often quote, so you're probably familiar with the, the beginning of it here. After this, I looked, and this is John, you know, giving a vision of what he sees of the last day, he says, Behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Right? The same kind of worship, the same kind of glory being given as was on that day, that very first Palm Sunday. But now, instead of seeing him as a king who comes in might and in power to conquer his enemies, he comes as a lamb. A lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. For Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is also the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He who was slain that his blood might wash us clean of our sin, that, that we might no longer be lost in our sin, but we might be freed from our sin, that we might no longer be, be slaves to Satan and slaves to hell, but might be, might be citizens of heaven with our brother Christ Jesus. 
sons and daughters of God, our Father. And he knows this is the only way. So inconvenient though it may be, painful though it will be, horrifying though it must be, Jesus goes to the future. He goes to the future. Now this is true of all of us, of course. We can only go in one direction, right? We, we can't go to the past. We can only go to the future. But for Jesus, it's in a very special way, in a very special sense that he is going to the future because he knows what that future is he's going to. He goes to it fully knowing what lies ahead of him. Right? And he could have tried to stay silent. He could have, amidst this, this throng of millions of people coming into Jerusalem, he, he could have just kind of blended in, right, and come in for the Passover and left. But that was not his desire. That was not his design. He had set his face to Jerusalem. And he was coming there. In fact, the, the standard of the day was such that it was actually required that if you were coming to Jerusalem for the Passover and you were able-bodied, you had to walk to Jerusalem. It was understand. That was the convention. That was the culture. It was that you would walk. You would come on foot. And so he's doing something very deliberately different. He's coming in on the donkey. He's drawing attention to himself. He's, he's saying, hey, everybody, look at me. Here I am. I'm hiding from no one. I'm coming, and this is who I am. And we see him coming in on this donkey, this donkey, we think a donkey, uh, ugly and dumb and useless donkey, but, but we need to understand that, that in that day, there actually was a, a sense in which a donkey was not thought of in, in as demeaning of terms as we might think of him. You see, if a, if a king was going to come in battle, he would come on a war horse, but if he was coming in peace, he would come on a donkey. And so it is that Jesus has given this message. It is he's going into the future. He's coming in peace. And one commentator put it this way. They said they were looking for a king who would shatter and smash and break. But when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day, he claimed to be a king of peace. His action was a contradiction of all that they had hoped and expected. Right? They, were, they were wanting to make him into a king, but not the type of king he was. Right? So they... They, they saw him coming in and they just wanted to reject the way he was coming, the way that he was coming on, on a donkey as a king of peace, as the prince of peace, right? And, and they treated him, you, we see the, the, the palm branches even, the, the waving, the hosannas and all of that. And, and perhaps it calls to mind uh, 2 Kings 9 where, where uh, Jehu is coming in and in haste every man of them took his garment and put it on, under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Uh, we need to know that Jehu was a, a man of war. He was a man of blood, not a man of peace. But they treat Jesus in the same way. For they had what they wanted to be the king. They had, they had tragically misunderstood who he was. And so there is in the message of Palm Sunday, I think, a terrible tragedy that is there. It is this, that so often we look to Jesus to be what we want as opposed to seeing him as what we need. Right? We're, we're like the, the child who, who won't eat the healthy dinner. He just wants the dessert. Right? And, and left to his own devices, he'll eat 17 desserts. Right? Which, of course, would make him sick. It won't be good for him. But that's where we are. We want what we want. We don't want 
the vegetables. We don't want the meat and potatoes. We don't want the things that we need that will nourish us, that will strengthen us, that will make us able to live as we are meant to live. We want Jesus to be the king we want him to be as opposed to the king he wants to be. I saw a quote from a friend of mine, Matt Redmond. I think there was some wisdom in this. He says, the American church's hope in politics and politicians is rooted in not recognizing that Jesus preached the gospel of him as king and his kingdom being at hand. Jesus and the gospel writers consistently call it the good news of the kingdom of God. And therein lies our hope, joy, and promise of peace. And so, even in the midst of the the terrible tragedy that is them not seeing Jesus for who he actually was, and amidst the terrible tragedy of us not seeing Jesus for who he truly is. There is this bit of good news, this gloriously beautiful truth. As great as our sin is, as great as our pride is, as great as our stubborn self-will is, as great as our blindness is, God's grace is greater still. His love is greater still. His glory is greater still. And in his glory and in his love and in his grace, he has sent his son to die for our sins, for our stubbornness, for our self-righteousness, for our stubborn self-will, for our blindness. And all of that was laid upon him at the cross. And there as he died on the cross for you and for me, satisfaction was made for all of our sins. And so though we are sinful and though we still fail and still flail about life, so unrighteous in all of our ways, Christ Jesus has made us righteous by giving us his righteousness. And so we rejoice in that fact And we commit now to worship him, not as the king we want him to be, but as the king he truly is. So may all glory, laud, and honor be to him who is the Prince of Peace and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you've not left us to our own devices. That you have sent your Son to be what we have failed to be, to do what we have failed to do, to accomplish what we have failed to accomplish. And you have sent your Spirit to convict us of our sin, to convince us of your truth and to empower us to live holy lives to your glory from this day forth. We pray that you would 
continually help us to do that with a vision of your glory and your grace before us. May we worship you as the king you are. May all glory, laud, and honor be yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now with the eyes, as we consider history 25, our glory, laud, and honor.